All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. All right, welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor, and I've got a great episode for you this week because this week I'll be talking with Steve Wolf of Pure Fishing. Steve is a category manager with Pure Fishing who focuses on Berkeley brands of saltwater lures. So we'll be talking about that iconic brand Berkeley and about strategies for using Berkeley lures. And during this week's bourbon break, I'll rattle on a bit about Clyde May's original Alabama whiskey. And then, you know what? I'm going to count down my top 10 pompano lures. Hey, before we get into all of that, though, and in my ongoing effort to educate you all in all things fishing, I read a really interesting piece of data the other day about tackle sales. Total tackle sales in 2021 increased over total tackle sales in 2019 by 62%. That's an incredible growth in just two years. Now, of course, data from 2020 is not as available or in flow with the trend because of the problems with COVID, closures, supply chain, employee absence, etc., Nonetheless, a 62% increase is amazing, and this includes increases in rod sales, reel sales, lure sales, fishing line sales, terminal tackle sales, fly fishing tackle sales, fishing electronic sales, and fishing apparel sales, just an across-the-board increase, which bodes well for the industry and for you as an angler. Hey, but all of that aside, we have another great Rodcast for you today, so let's get to it. Welcome to the Rodcast. Let's get casting. All right, I am thrilled to welcome Steve Wolf to the Rodcast today. Steve is a category manager with Pure Fishing who specializes in the Berkeley brands of saltwater lures. And as you know, Berkeley is one of the most iconic brands in all of fishing. Berkeley is a comprehensive tackle company providing top-tier gear in freshwater lures, saltwater lures, rods, reels, hooks, tackle management, line management, tools, knives, and so much more. Berkeley is as synonymous with fishing in the U.S. as is any brand out there. There's probably not an angler in the U.S. that hasn't at some time in their fishing career used a Berkeley product. And I'd bet a dime to a dollar that most of us learned and learned to and then cleaned our first fish with that classic Berkeley wooden-handled fillet knife. But Steve specializes in Berkeley saltwater lures, so we're going to take a deep dive into with Steve today to really get a handle on the success of some of Berkeley's premier lures, and we'll tap him for some insider info for fishing some of those highly productive baits. Now, I do have to give you a heads up too, and this is for Steve's sake. I may have to tone down the questions today and slow up my questions for a little bit because oh, man. Steve's a vol, and oh, we man. accommodate the less fortunate whenever we can. But Steve, thanks for being on the most hostile fishing podcast on the internet. Welcome to the Rodcast. <laughs> Thank you, Sid. I'm glad to be here. And you know, it's a good day to be a Vol because we're actually playing today for the first game of the year. So very excited. Uh, congratulations, but I can only wrap that up with Go Gators. So uh... fair, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> so let's get things rolling with a bit of background information. Tell us a bit about the Steve Wolf origin story, how you got into fishing and how you've made a career out of your interest in fishing. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's 
I think it's interesting. It's been fun. I started out in in apparel, honestly. I've got, you know, decades of experience in apparel uh, working in team license sports. And I was sitting in, uh, you know, my office at Majestic Athletic in Pennsylvania and just said, man, there's got to be a way to do this for, uh, you know, for fishing somehow. And it's fishing's always been my passion. I've been inshore fishing for 22 years. And uh, I worked my way to uh, Costa Sunglasses, where I spent uh, five or six years working on apparel and accessories at Costa and worked, uh, you know, right next to the uh, folks doing sunglasses there. And then got an opportunity to come over to Pure Fishing and work on inshore baits, which is really what I love to do. Uh, you know, I started out kayak fishing out of uh, Tampa Bay, Florida, actually, and uh, just had a field day, you know, fishing around through there. And on the west coast of Florida, recently switched over to a, a flat skiff over here in Mosquito Lagoon. And, you know, it just kind of kind of living my passion and getting a chance to work in the industry as well. So I'm, I'm blessed. Do I do I hear a Dave Boltice connection there from you, Costa you to Pure? Definitely. Fishing? You definitely do. I follow down around Dave Boltice. That's excellent. And I, I, you know, we have a, you and I have a lot in common. I uh, spend an immense amount of time kayak fishing in Tampa Bay area. I can uh, do Whedon Island and all the way down around Fort DeSoto anytime. And Mosquito Lagoon's my old stomping ground. So tell us a bit about your role with Pure Fishing and Berkeley and what a category manager does. Absolutely. So I take care of all saltwater inshore baits. So that encompasses Berkeley hard baits. It is also Berkeley gulp for saltwater and also uh, Johnson. So we own the Johnson brand as well. And, uh, and I take care of my piece of that, you know, namely the, the silver minnow being the, the big hitter there. Right, that, so yeah, that. go ahead. Sorry. Oh, and, 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 you know, really as far as what the job entails, I mean, it's understanding and being connected with what's happening in the, in the market, uh, from an inshore perspective in my situation, you know, talking to anglers, talking to guides, pros, talking to dealers, talking to big box accounts, and just seeing, you know, what's out there, finding out what they like about what we already have and find out what we're missing and, you know, where there's some opportunity and, you know, to, to find some solutions for, a, you know, for saltwater anglers. So I really focus on that. And then I take it from an idea phase and run it past a whole bunch of people and, get it into the uh, concept phase and run it through our Berkeley labs up in uh, Spirit Lake, Iowa, and, uh, you know, go through extensive testing on everything that we do and eventually bring it to market. That all sounds so fantastic. I got to tell you, I'm sure there are a lot of us, including myself, who are really jealous of such a position with such an iconic company. I mean, just working with those kinds of lures is fantastic. So, Let's talk about some of those lures that fall under your portfolio and let's start big right out of the gate. And let's talk about gulp because gulp provides such a diverse array of patterns and options. And the series is also probably the best known collection of scented lures out there. And so to get us rolling, I want to just throw out there that there are a lot of gulp shapes and sizes you've got for saltwater alone. You ready for this? The saltwater extruded bloodworm, the saltwater shrimp, the saltwater baitfish, the saltwater fat hollow sandworm, the saltwater mullet, the saltwater mud minnow croaker, the saltwater sand eel, the saltwater sand crab flea, the saltwater sandworm, the saltwater pogey, the saltwater ripple mullet, the saltwater nemesis, the saltwater paddle shad, 
saltwater grub, saltwater ghost shrimp, saltwater swimming mullet, saltwater eel, saltwater bloodworm, saltwater squid, saltwater jerk shad, saltwater peeler crab, saltwater manis shrimp, saltwater rattle shrimp, saltwater bloodworm, and saltwater crazy legs jerk shad. That is one impressive catalog. So you take a breath in there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I was looking at them just to write that list, I got more and more excited because, you know, I fish with a bunch of these, but I didn't know there were that many. I mean, that's impressive. So give us a little bit of background about the Gulp brand. Tell us about Gulp. What do we need to know when we think about Gulp lures? Absolutely. So it's been around for upwards of 20 years now. And, you know, the guy actually who, one of the people who who invented Gulp actually still works with us. And I, you know, talk to him on a regular basis. So I've got the the Gulp guru right at my fingertips to find out anything I need to know about it. But, uh, you know, I've been using it for about that amount of time as well as an angler. And, you know, we're all familiar with, you know, shapes like our three inch shrimp and new penny, which is iconic. But I think the thing most people are not as familiar with, they hear scented and you hear scented from a lot of different uh, brands and companies and different baits, uh, but we don't quantify what scented is. And we view, first of all, gulp as a live bait alternative. And the reason we do that is because gulp, gulp is the scent. I mean, it's, it's not just put on top of the material. That material is gulp. And when you pull it out of the bag and you drop it into the water, you can't necessarily see the 400 times scent dispersion, you know, because it's, it's clear. But if you could see like a, a dyed version of that, liquid, you would see a scent plume that goes out, you know, four to six feet around the bait if you just dead stick it. And the important thing about gulp is it's a it's a water-based uh, chemistry. So it mixes with the water and fish can sell, smell multiple parts per billion of a scent in the water. So it rides along with, you know, with, with the salt water. When you have a bait that has a oil-based chemistry to it in, in their scent package, it rides on the bait. It doesn't mix with water. Oil and water don't mix. So, you know, we smell it. You know, if you see another scent that you put on a bait that's thick and oily, we smell it. It may not necessarily be smelled by the fish quite as much as what, you know, Gulp does. And we've proven that. We know Gulp is effective from that standpoint. Um, you know, so the next thing we have you know, have to do with that and what we've done over the course of decades is picking all of those shapes that you mentioned based on the regionality and the needs of someone in the uh, in the northeast uh, striper fishing or someone, you know, in Tampa Bay, you know, redfish, you know, uh, fishing or, you know, over in Louisiana or Texas, wherever the case may be. And we've created all these different shapes, sizes and colors to to accommodate everybody you know and, and some of the balance that we have to work with on gulp is you know there's just like with live bait there's a level of uh durability or you know maybe not quite as durable but you have that balance of durability and um, efficacy and you know we we work that balance with gulp on a regular basis between the shapes of how how hard does it need to be and still give the swimming action that a paddle shad may need to give versus our new uh, gulp surf bites that we just came out with, which, you know, is a, a surf fishing bait that you can cut from a, from a strip. 
doesn't necessarily need to have um, a lot of uh, action to it because it's just a little, you know, chip, if you will, once you cut a piece off and you put it on a, on a Pompano jig, you know, so we can make that a little bit more durable and, and harder because it's not going to affect the action of it. Uh, so a lot goes into the chemistry of gulp. It's not a uh, one size fits all. Um, and, uh, you know, it's really based on the, uh, you know, the shape and the size and the the purpose for how you would fish gulp. That's really interesting. Can you, there's one thing I've been trying to figure out and I'm wondering if you can clarify for me, can you clarify the difference between gulp and gulp alive? For example, there's both gulp saltwater paddle shad and gulp alive saltwater paddle shad. Exactly. So the, the liquid that you see in gulp, I mean, we, we bounce back and forth with this internally as to how to call it and, and, you know, how to, how to message it in the market, the, the gulp alive pints and half pints that you get, you have that extra gulp juice in there, if you will. And what that allows you to do is take a shrimp out, fish it, and then you may have had it in the water for a little while. You can take that, drop it back in the, uh, the half, it will recharge in that liquid. Um, the chemistry of gulp that comes in the pints and half pints may be a little bit different in some of the components that we use to uh, to develop those compared to what's in a bag. And I can't go into a ton of detail on that, but I will say, for instance, there's been some baits that we put a little uh, extra fleck or flake in a gulp shape that we would have in a bag but it doesn't react well when you put it in suspended in that liquid so we don't offer that colorway in that liquid so there's a little variation um honestly that's one of those areas where from a trade secret standpoint they they asked me do you want to sign a non-disclosure and learn about it i said no <laughs> I'm, right. I'm good with that you you've told me what i need to know but but that that sums it up that's really interesting. And so where do power baits fit in that pedigree then? Sure. Well, you know, and, and we have two other technologies and working across the spectrum of, of scent dispersion, using that as a, as a key factor here, we have on the bass side, on the, the freshwater side, Maxent power bait, which is a PVC-based bait that uh, accepts the Maxent scent and it disperses it out. Um better than just the basic power bait. So that one does have scent and taste to it. So if a fish smells it from a long distance away and comes in and bites it, and it's like, yeah, that's that's what I'm smelling. It smells so good. Very similar to Gulp. Gulp has probably our largest um, uh, scent dispersion. Max Scent, power bait Max Scent has our second best scent dispersion. And then power bait is about taste, really. So it's it's a PVC-based bait. It does not have a, a scent that's going to emanate off of it, but it has flavor to it. So when a fish bites it, they do bite and hold on to it. And as I was learning more about power bait, because I'm you know inshore fisherman, and that's that's kind of where I focus. But I go fish the ponds here where I live in Florida, and I was fishing a a, a Mac. Um, a power bait, uh, power worm. And I could actually feel the fish short strike the worm and hold on to it as I'm pulling it back and snap it like a rubber band. And that happened to me three times. The first time I had fished a, a power bait power worm three times in a row, probably the same fish. 
and was amazed by that. And then I got to see it in the labs and see what I was experiencing out in the ponds. Wow, that's really interesting. I do think we need to put a disclaimer in there regarding flavor because we may have other vol listeners that the flavor is for fish, not for people. Um, so yes, <laughs> yes, not to be consumed, uh, not for human consumption. Um, I am kind of curious. You know, we I went through that long list of uh, of, of different shapes. What are the more popular sellers uh, among the golf brands, and is it always just regional? Sure. Well, I'll talk about both of those. Actually, our top selling shape and skew actually is a three inch uh, swimming mullet in pearl white. Uh, the swimming mullet is just an extremely popular uh, shape for us. Next would be the shrimp, like you would expect. I mean, that's a really strong one for us. And then from there, it goes to the jerk shad, the grub, and uh, the paddle shad or the paddle tail, which is coming on really strong. So the and, more generic shapes rather than, you know, something like the sand flea or the sand worm. Correct. And it's just to that exact point. It's not as a, you can use those in a majority of fishing applications, whereas a sand flea is going to be focused on surf fishing mostly. And, you know, you're looking at a smaller audience there, but other shapes like our grub as an example, when you, you ask about, regionality you know the the four inch grub and the six inch grub are very strong shapes for us in the northeast and then also the bigger grub our eight inch grub in the pacific northwest um i work with a uh, a guy up in the northeast and he also winters down in florida john skinner who has a, a great youtube channel and you know i provide uh, gulp grubs to him and he uses those along with uh, bucktails and that's like a focus of his for, uh, you know, for striper and for fluke in the Northeast. So those vary a little bit, but I, I think really the prominent ones are going to be shrimp and the swimming mullet and then the jerk shad, just because it suits so many inshore fishing applications. Yeah, that makes sense. And those are, you know, those really are multi-regional applicable kinds of, of bait fish imitators. So most definitely. So about just a couple of years ago, um, Gulp responded to a bunch of customer comments about the packaging of Gulp lures and upgraded how Gulp is packaged. Could you talk, I know that's before you got to Berkeley, but could you talk a bit about that shift in Gulf packaging? Yeah, we did uh, go through some packaging reviews and we, we do this all the time, honestly, but in the, uh, in the vacuum bags that we have, we just reinforce the, the seal on it. So, uh, you know, so it stays closed a little bit better with a, a strong uh, seal on top. Um, and then on the, the pints, I think those have been pretty consistent, but we constantly look at that to make sure our seals on our lids are, are strong because we know, you know, leakage is a big concern with gulp. So we want to guard against that at every, every possible opportunity. No, that makes sense. I have to say the new packaging is much more reliable. So I appreciate that from an angler standpoint. So one of the things that contributes to Gulp's popularity isn't just the numbers of designs and shapes, but the near infinite rigging options for these baits. Could you give us as an inshore angler and as also a Gulp expert, some insider info about the most productive ways to rig Gulp baits? Yeah, I think it depends on the shape. I mean, as I had mentioned on the, on the grub, you know, one thing I kind of came back to, you know, working again with John Skinner was, 
pairing it up with our Fusion 19 bucktails, which is just something I hadn't done really since I fished in Tampa and had a blast doing that uh, down here in the Mosquito Lagoon and found it productive. You know, other ways, obviously, taking a you know, Fusion 19 swim bait jig head and you can virtually put any of these shapes on a, on a jig head. You know, a shrimp on a jig head is, you know, is deadly. I mean, that's that's a go-to. Uh, the jerk bait, I think, is a good example of one where you could take a weighted or an unweighted uh, EWG and rig it, you know, multiple ways, whether it's weedless or you could take it, put it on a circle hook and just rig it through the tip of the nose of a, of a jerk bait and, and fish it that way as well. That's excellent. Yeah. In fact, I think, you know, when I'm, you're speaking of mosquito lagoon, when I'm fishing whales tail or marker 42 there, that the uh, jig head and the shrimp is pretty much my standard right there. Um, yeah, most definitely. It's, uh, I've played around with our shrimp a little bit, like in the larger size and, um, played around with it, rigging it backwards and, you know, just cutting the tail off and putting it on a jig head. So it looks more like a fleeing shrimp, uh, and, you know, moving it a little bit quicker, you know, when, uh, the water is a little warmer and, you know, fish are a little bit more active. So yeah, there's, there's infinite ways you can rig those for sure. Excellent. So Berkeley's releasing some new chrome color gulp lures this year. Can you tell us a bit about the new colors and the logic behind having a series of chrome gulp? Sure. So that's been a big push from my side is what do you bring into, you know, even though we, we look at ourselves as a live bait alternative, we sit on the pegs right next to soft plastics, right? So what do we do to bring ourselves a little bit more along to uh, the soft plastic world. And when you look at a lot of the gulp colors that we have, like a new penny or some, they can be maybe a little flat just by the nature of the material. And we've recently found ways to incorporate some, I'll say metallics. They're, you know, the, the components of what they are, again, are trade secret, but something that just has a little bit more reflectivity to it. And we've incorporated that into baits to, make them more resemble a bait fish. So a solid chrome jerk chad, it just looks so much like a, you know, a pilchard or a, you know, whatever the case may be, a bay anchovy. Um, the green back with a chrome belly looks like a pilchard. There's just, uh, they just resemble a bait fish so much more and you get that extra flash when they're in the water. Can't wait to see those. So speaking of new lures, Berkeley is also introducing a new saltwater crankbait this year, the Juke. Could you tell us a bit about the Juke and the thinking behind it? Yeah. So when I joined the company, we had some good top ba uh, topwater baits in the line. We have our Cane Walker, our, our Hijacker, and then our Jaywalker in a couple of different sizes. And then we have the Magic Swimmer as well, and that covered a little bit more of the water column and the Vibrato, which covers a little more of the water column. But I was looking to round out our assortment. So when an angler goes into a tackle shop, they're not just going to grab a topwater because, you know, you'll use a topwater first thing in the morning, you know, maybe when the water's calm and the sun hadn't popped up too much. And that's a great time for, you know, for a topwater hit. I wanted to get more suspended baits in, into our line. So the Juke is a, a tall sided crankbait basically, or even a slash bait or twitch bait if you want. It's lipped, uh, but it gets down in the water column about three to five feet and just has an amazing amount of side to side roll and flash. 
Uh, I've been able to fish that bait for about a year and a half now, and I found it very, very productive. Um, I've fished with uh, probably a few folks, you know, Jeff Weekly um, in Louisiana and a few others. We had great success with that bait. In particular, the 85 millimeter version of it in a chrome chartreuse was just super effective. So been really, really impressed with a juke. Um, you know, when we were looking at shapes to bring in that one, we just saw from an action standpoint worked from a field performance standpoint, it just worked. And it was just a no brainer to, to pull into the line. Um, what you will see from us as we continue to build out our line, we want to bring in shapes that will be our iconic shapes, shapes of the future. You know, you've got, you know, brands out there like Yozuri with a crystal minnow or the, you know, Rapala X wrap or whatever, you know, the various other brands Our our cutter as an example is going to be one that will be our iconic jerk bait. This juke will be our iconic, you know, tall sided jerk bait. Our jaywalker will be our iconic top water and you're going to see us continue to build those sizes out and the colors out and not move away from them so we want it to be you know to to gain the notoriety that some of those other brands have where just an angler says you know i have to have a berkeley jaywalker in my in my tackle box i have to have a juke in my tackle box so given that then, and, you know, crankbaits are, you know, they really gained their popularity in bass fishing and transitioned over to saltwater. Could you tell us when we should go to a crankbait like the Juke and offer us some strategies for when crankbaits make sense inshore? Sure. I think the great thing about a, a crankbait is it, it is such a versatile bait. And, you know, depending on the brand and the style, you know, will dictate how deep it'll dive or if it's what its buoyancy is. Our juke is, uh, is slow rising. So it's not, I know Rapala as an example, has some sinking baits and you can really work a lot of the water column there. These are really more for fishing in shallower conditions, maybe, you know, from, you know, surface down to about 10 feet, but I would, I would probably start the day off with a top water if the water conditions are good. And I would switch over as the sun pops up to a, to a juke 85 and I would work it along rock pilings. I would work it along flats and just drop offs next to flats. I would work it along, uh, docks. Uh, there's just so many different ways you can, you can work a, a juke or a jerk bait. Excellent. So let's switch from, um, the crank, uh, a crank bait and talk about jerk baits for a minute, because, Berkeley's got a pretty dynamic array of hard body and soft body jerk baits like the Stunna and the Power Bait Saltwater Jerk Shad. And we're seeing jerk baits growing in popularity among saltwater anglers. So would you tell us about the primary characteristics of a jerk bait and what distinguishes a saltwater jerk bait from a freshwater jerk bait? I'm also interested in hearing how anglers can distinguish between jerk baits and other lures like crank baits and swim baits. It's kind of funny when I, I listen to people talk about those three, just focusing on the hard bait side, how a lot of them get to be pretty interchangeable. Uh, and I do think you're seeing a, a convergence between freshwater and saltwater inshore fishing when it comes to bait shapes and sizes and actions. You know, from a from a 
jerkbait standpoint, I mean, typically you're going to see a build, uh, long, sleek-bodied, uh, hard bait profile that's going to you know resemble a, a bait fish. I think in in freshwater, you'd probably see maybe a combination of two hooks and then also a three-hook setup. In saltwater, you're probably going to see more of a two-hook setup with two larger, um, heavier wire gauge hooks. Uh, you know, as an example, like with our our Cutter 90 that we're getting ready to launch, uh, actually right now, it's you should start seeing it in stores. That's a two-hook uh, 90 millimeter jerk bait. Uh, whereas if it were in the freshwater side, you might see it with a lighter wire. Uh, not necessarily a stainless steel hook, and it might even have a three-hook configuration there uh, from a jerkbait standpoint. You know, and then when it comes to really crankbaits, that's where I think this juke shape starts to blur the lines a little bit from what you would see in a freshwater crankbait and a saltwater crankbait. This one, uh, the juke does have a longer, more slender body to it, Um and a little bit of a higher side than what you would see in a traditional short, I'll say stubby, you know, traditional crankbait uh, like our, our wake bowl or our square bowl that you would see in our bass line. Um, however, I'm starting to see more of those topwater wake bait crankbaits from the freshwater market work their way over into saltwater. And, you know, that's something we're looking at as well. You're also seeing, this is straying off a little bit from your question, but you're starting to see glide baits uh, be more important on the freshwater side. And you'll start to see that come over into the uh, into the freshwater market or saltwater market as well. That's really interesting. You know, I heard you on the Northwest Florida Fishing Report podcast talking about strategies for fishing jerkbaits in saltwater. And I think that what you said there bears repeating, not only since Berkeley offers these various kinds of saltwater jerkbaits, but there's a bit of a learning curve for working a jerkbait as compared with, as you were talking about, the crankbaits or topwaters. Could you give us some advice about fishing jerkbaits and when we should use them in saltwater? Yeah, I, I think it does vary quite a bit. And I think, you know, from my perspective, what I'll do with any any bait, regardless of it's hard bait, soft bait, whatever it is, I'm going to put it on my line and I'm going to toss it out real close to me and just kind of see what the action is. I want to see what it is if I'm moving it fast, moving it slow. If I jerk it, if I rip it, you know, when it pauses, is it going to sink? Is it going to float? And, you know, from there, I think you can start to vary and see, you know, what action works in whatever uh, environment you're in. You know, maybe in, um, you know, earlier in the morning, maybe on a spring, warmer spring day, fish might be a little bit more active and you can move that thing a little bit quicker and pop it and have more of an erratic action. Uh, but as you start to get into uh, maybe in the middle of the summer, they may be more lethargic in the middle of the day and you have to move it a little slower. And frankly, you may need a smaller size jerkbait, um, you know, so that you can elicit a strike. So I think it really is just tapping into the versatility of what that lure can do and what the fish is going to react to. Yeah, I think that term versatility when it comes to jerkbaits is a, is a key way of talking about them. Um, so 
there's another Berkeley lure I've been wanting to ask about because of its unique design. And you talked a little bit about topwaters, and that's the Chapo, which has that unique propeller tail that's a different take on a tail blade for topwater lures. Can you tell us about the Chapo? Yeah, that's been a fun one. We actually won uh, Vesta category in saltwater hard baits for that this last year. And uh, we have that in a 105 and a 120. And, you know, it's it's a prop bait. It's got a propeller on the back. Um, you know, you're going to see it compared to probably the Whopper Popper out there. Obviously, you, you see all sorts of comparison videos on that. You know, our, our Chapo has uh, a really sturdy back prop on it. So when you feel the thickness of that, that blade, it's much thicker and it makes a little bit different sound uh, than maybe what you would see from a Whopper Plopper. It'll be a little bit deeper sound, but it's a, it's a super durable bait. Uh, it's got a, a really sturdy back wire connection to it. It's not a through wire, but it's got a sturdy back wire connection to it. Um, that's a bait I, in playing around with that, whether it's with bass or, or also inshore, that one's a lot of fun to work with. I think for a, a beginner angler, it's just an easy cast and wine lure that does all the work for you. And, you know, it creates the action without a, a new angler having to do much to it. But with somebody who's a little bit more advanced, you can have a lot of fun with that bait, just like with the jerk bait and the versatility of it. Um, it's got a lot of versatility and you can, you can rip it. You can just slowly pop it, you know, very slowly and just have the propeller moving along at a slow pace, or you can just, you know, fast retrieve and have it make all sorts of sound. Uh, so it's, it is an interesting bait. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a unique design for that, that propeller because it's not, it's not a blade hanging off the back. I mean, it looks like it's uh, integrated to the overall body of the top water. So yeah, great, great little lure. Hey, speaking of unique lures, you brought it up a minute ago. Tell me about the vibrato. That's an interesting design. Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, we, we, we bought the Patrick Seville brand, Seville Lures, a long while back. And, you know, he had some great, great, great lures in his assortment that we we moved away from them just a little bit. And we brought them back in as we started to determine what we wanted to do for saltwater again. Uh, we had been focused on bass and freshwater for, so you know, such a long time and really came back into the saltwater market. Uh, the Vibrato uh, is is an interesting lure in that it, it can work in saltwater, but it also is an amazing freshwater bait. And it's also an amazing ice fishing bait. And we have that in six sizes. I think we go from an eighth ounce all the way up to a one ounce. Um, you know, in the smaller sizes, I know they do a lot of that with ice fishing. But I think that's an interesting one. And in, in playing around with it, I'll use a, a little, I guess they're called fast clips. Or you could put a, you could just put a, a clip on it instead of tying directly to the top of that vibrato. But the neat thing about it is it has a, you know, obviously a, a treble hook on either side, and it's just a very simple blade bait. And the action on that, whether it's on the rise or the fall, is just this fluttering motion, and you just see a lot of, you know, real visual cues of flash from the bait. And you also just see the fluttering and the vibration from it. And it's it's a really deadly bait uh, in, in a lot of situations. So when you say that, what are my target species with a vibrato? I mean, when I saw it, the first thing I thought was Spanish mackerel, but 
clearly it's broader range than that. Yeah, I think you could take that, you know, from an inshore standpoint or maybe nearshore standpoint, you could fish that on reefs and on the, some of the larger sizes and probably do some, you know, pretty good with some larger, uh, you know, nearshore like reef fish would be an example. Maybe you're also, you could do Spanish, you could probably get snap, little snapper with it as well. Uh, you know, for me on the inshore side, I would play with it around, uh, around bridges and dock pilings as well. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting bait. I mean, you know, obviously bass fishing is a, uh, is a big piece of where that one is played. And then of course, again, ice fishing. Yeah. And now since you mentioned mosquito lagoon earlier, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking maybe in that deeper water there at Hallover canal, um, up near the, you know, in the middle of the lagoon would be a neat place to run that in the deeper water there for those bigger bull reds. Yeah, that would probably work and be interesting. So you've given us some great info on a bunch of new stuff, but what other news, what can we expect from Berkeley in the near future? Well, our direction really is to continue to build out our hard bait story and some of the shapes that you're seeing us launch to, to fill in some gaps there. You know, so the Jaywalker, you're probably going to see some size extensions on that. Our cutter, you are going to see some size extensions on our cutter as we build that story out from a jerkbait uh, standpoint. The juke, you're going to see size extensions there. So instead of coming into the market high, wide, and handsome and having every single size and color and skew we could possibly have, we wanted to focus it where we felt like the business was and then start to fill in from there. So that's kind of part of our strategy on the hard bait side. On gulp, you're going to continue to see us looking at shapes where it makes sense to bring in new shapes. And if there's a, an old shape that's not doing so well, we may move away from that. You'll continue to see us moving along the lines of color stories. So the chrome story will continue. And then we've got some other exciting things coming down the pike here pretty soon that are, I think, uh, pretty, pretty earth shattering for gulp colors. So uh, excited about that for next year. I can't wait to see that. And Steve, this has all been great. And I really appreciate all this fantastic and insightful information about these Berkeley saltwater lures. But before we go, I do want to ask you our standard wrap-up question. So Steve, with all your work in the industry and all of your own passions for fishing and all the stuff you do in inshore fishing, what's your grail fish? What's the one fish out there that you still want to catch? A bonefish. Really? I mean, honestly, it's just, I target inshore species around, as I'd mentioned, around the, you know, Florida, uh, snook, redfish, trout. Uh, every once in a while, I'm lucky to get a tarpon, but I, I want to catch a bonefish. Maybe a permit would be pretty cool, too. I think we can uh, connect you with the right people for that inside Florida. That's for sure. Yeah, that would be good. Those those are two I've yet to get a hold of in a in a meaningful size. So definitely want to get those. Oh, those are great grailfish. Some of my favorites to go after. Steve, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with us about all these great Berkeley lures. I know that given what you've said today, I'm going to be paying a lot more attention to how I'm fishing with that chopo, and I'm going to be putting the jukes in the water as soon as I can get some and get my get out there on the water. So I'm really grateful for what you've taught us today, and I'll admit. I'm kind of impressed that Evol has this much knowledge, but uh, with all in all seriousness, thanks so much for being on the Rodcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sid. 
right, my listening crew, it is time for another bourbon break. And today's bourbon break is fueled by my thoughts about the fantastic gulf fishing around Gulf Shores, Alabama. Man, the offshore action in the North Gulf of Mexico is just fantastic, as is the inshore bounty of redfish and flounder in that area. So with that in mind today, I want to take a look at Clyde May's original Alabama whiskey. Now, back in episode 1.4 of the Fishing Professor Rodcast, I talked about Clyde May's straight bourbon whiskey. So I think it's time to take a look at Clyde May's original Alabama whiskey. Now, in that first Clyde May bourbon break, I provided an overview of the interesting Clyde May origin story. And since it's been about six months since I talked about that story, I think it's well worth the recap to get a better sense of the Clyde May origin so we can talk about Clyde May Bama whiskey. You see, the story of Clyde May, it's a great story. One of those kinds of true American outlaw hero stories. You see, Clyde May was born back in 1922, just before the Great Depression. And as soon as I say that, you're thinking, all right, the Great Depression, this is going to be a John Steinbeck quality story, one filled with toughness and true American grit. Anyway, during World War II, Clyde May served in the 77th Infantry Division, commanding a rifle squad and earning a Bronze Star, recognizing his heroic service in combat. He also earned the Purple Heart, as you know, for being wounded in combat. That wound sent him back home to Alabama, where he took up distilling and became the most wanted moonshiner in Alabama, though some folks say he was the most wanted moonshiner in the country. Them damn revenuers, as the movies like to depict it, ended up catching up with Clyde, and he ended up doing an eight-month stretch in Federal Pen at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery. And as you might imagine, as soon as he got out, he started his stills right back up. So basically, Clyde became the most legendary bootlegger around. From around 30 years, from the 1950s to the 1980s, Clyde was turning out about 300 gallons of shine a week using the still he designed. His shine was getting famous, too, as it was much better quality than what other bootleggers were producing. Clyde mostly sold the, shine, sold the shine as corn liquor, unaged, just straight off the still. But he did cask some of it in charred barrels with some dried apples for flavor. He'd aged the cask whiskey for about a year, claiming that the hot Alabama summers accelerated the effect of aging, requiring only one year instead of the minimum of two required for bourbons to be called bourbons. Now, interestingly, when Clyde got out of Maxwell Air Force Base, the same guy who convicted him, Attorney General John N. Mitchell, well, he was sentenced to two and a half to eight years in prison for his role in the Watergate break-in and cover-up. Now, Clyde May died in 1990. His son, Kenny, wanted to honor his father's memory by producing legal whiskey from his dad's recipe. And in 2002, Working under Kentucky Bourbon Distillers Limited of Bardstown, Kentucky, and overseen by master distiller Evan Culsveen, Kenny started turning out whiskey legally under the name Kaneka Brands. Sorry, I lost my tongue there. Kaneka Brands. In April of 2004, both houses of the Alabama legislator voted to name Kaneka Ridge Alabama Fine Whiskey the official state spirit. And for a few months, you could buy it in a few liquor stores in Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, and Florida. But in 2004, it became really hard to get, and most stores stopped carrying it. The word is that there was just too much trouble getting stocked to the stores. That same year, Kenny May pled guilty to two misdemeanor charges in Alabama for selling liquor without a license. The result was that the Conecuh Ridge lost its distribution license and couldn't sell liquor in Alabama. 
like father, like son, I guess. And after all, Clyde May brand motto is literally, it's better to break, break a law than to cut corners. So in 2009, Spirits Acquisition Corporation out of Dallas bought Conecuh Ridge and the Clyde May brands were revitalized. Now, Kenny May died back in 2016, the same year that the company released the Clyde May straight bourbon whiskey that they sell. And in 2017, Clyde May's whiskey announced their plans to build a distillery in Troy, Alabama, about 20 miles away from where Clyde had his still. Interesting side note that until 2013, it was illegal to distill spirits in Alabama. So all this adds up to one of those rough and tumble post-depression prohibition and World War II tough guy images that Clyde May uses to market its whiskey. Even if the bottle is designed to look like what we want from a bootlegger, complete with a picture of Clyde himself, sleeves rolled up, ready to take on them damn revenuers to protect his still. And that brings us to the Clyde May Original Alabama Whiskey. The eye of this whiskey tells you straight away that this is a different sort of whiskey. It hints at the browns and ambers of bourbon, but the defining color is a deep red, like a red wood stain, leaning into a bronze color, but with more red than yellow. The Alabama whiskey boasts a mash bill of 55% corn, 12% wheat, and 15% barley. And it comes in as an 85-proof whiskey, and it's aged for four years in oak barrels. And then, according to the Clyde May pages, it's finished with a hint of apples. And those apples show up in the nose as a kind of sweet green apple scent, along with vanilla and popcorn and some dried fruits. Palette is also sweet with strong overtones of caramel apple and butterscotch. There's also spice here, like cinnamon and allspice, a very autumnal taste. I like the flavors that come out in this whiskey. It isn't a flavored whiskey like some of the apple or honey bourbons that are out there, but the flavors are predominant enough that they take center stage in this palette. That spice lingers in the finish with a little black peppery taste showing up too. The finish is not what I'd call a long finish, but it's also not a short finish. It hangs around long enough to be pleasant, but not overbearing. I should say, too, that in addition to its pleasant taste, one of the great things about the Alabama whiskey is that it lists for about 33 bucks, and it's worth every dime of that. There's no doubt that I like this Clyde Mays Alabama whiskey and like to have a bottle around. It's not a top-tier whiskey, but it's a good, enjoyable whiskey that's worth the pour. And those are my thoughts about Clyde May's original Alabama whiskey. Hey, as a final note in my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break Reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all. Though, of course, as always, I am open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to World Brothers Bar and Restaurant on 17th Street in Virginia Beach, one of the great classic bars of the Va Beach area, a place that I blame for more hangovers than any one bar ought to be able to claim responsibility for. World's is as beach bar as it gets and well worth stopping by after you get off the water. And just as a reminder, when we drink, we get drunk. When we get drunk, we fall asleep. When we fall asleep, we commit no sin. When we commit no sin, we go to heaven. So let's all get drunk and go to heaven. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. And now, back to the water. 
All right, my listening crew, it is time for this week's top 10 list. And this week, I'm going to take you through my top 10 favorite pompano lures. And yeah, I'm going to roll banana jigs, goofy jigs, bucktails, and sand flea imitators all into this list. I should note too that there are a lot of great bonefish jigs out there that do great for pompano, but I'm not counting on them today in the top 10. Likewise, pompano lures are one of those kinds of lures that a lot of small local companies will make. So often local tackle shops will carry local lures that are well worth using. But I just don't ever get to see those unless I happen to be in a tackle shop where that lure is sold. I always recommend that you try locally made lures as they are probably designed for the local fish and supporting local small tackle businesses is a great thing. Of course, those of you who fish for pompano know what a fantastic fish pompano are, both for their fight and for their delectable meat. One of the best eating fishes out there, and I know a lot of chefs or seafood aficionados like myself who recommend that you use pompano in just about all of your recipes that call for a white meat fish. You know, the pompano has such a fantastic reputation as a game fish that the U.S. Navy has at least four times named a commissioned vessel after the fish. The USS Pompano was commissioned by the Navy from 1917 through 1919 for use during World War I. It was a civilian wooden motorboat that was owned by the Globe Fish Company out of Elizabeth, North Carolina. Now, she was decommissioned in January of 1919 and returned to the Globe Fishing Company. However, the USS Pompano was also a porpoise-class submarine that was launched on March 11, 1937, and commissioned later that year on June 12, 1937. The Pompano was awarded a battle star for the attack on Pearl Harbor, but she actually hadn't gotten to Pearl when the attack occurred, reaching Pearl shortly after the attack. She sailed from Pearl on December 18, 1941, for her first war patrol, devoted mainly to reconnoitering the uh, eastern Marshall Islands for aircraft carrier strikes in January of that year. Now, the Pompano was very active in the Pacific during World War II with countless missions, but when Pompano left Midway on August 20, 1943, headed for Hokkaido and Honshu, she was never heard from again and was presumed lost. The Japanese Japanese knew that she was in her in that area, however, because two Japanese ships fell to her torpedoes during September. The Akama Maru on September 3rd, 1943, and the Taiko Maru on September 25th, 1943. The Japanese made no anti-submarine attacks during that period in Pompano's area. So the we're assuming then, because there were no torpedoes launched from the Japanese Navy to any submarines at that time, we're assuming that newly laid land, newly, newly laid mines in the vicinity, vicinity were not known to the U.S. Navy intelligence until after she had sailed, and that's probably what sank her. Pompano was stricken from Naval Vessel Register on 12 January 1944, so the entire crew and everyone was lost lost from the USS Pompano. Now, there was another Pompano sub, a trench-class submarine, that was planned to be built in 1945, but those plans got scrapped. And of course, for those of you who know, the USS Pompanito, the little Pompano, was a Ballo-class submarine. She completed six war patrols from 44 to 45 and now ser- and served as a uh, United States Naval Reserve training ship from 1960 to 71. She's now a National Historic Landmark preserved as a memorial and museum ship in the San Francisco Maritime National Park 
Um, and it's located at Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco if you want to go take a look at the USS Pampanito. So now you have a little history about the U.S. Navy's acknowledgement of the downright power of the Pompano. But I digress. So let's get back to the countdown of my favorite Pompano submarines. I mean, Pompano lures. Okay. The leadoff batter today at number 10 is the Mr. Pompano jig. This is a soft body sand flea imitator that comes pre-rigged with a jig head that is molded to look like the back of a sand flea. They're one and a quarter inches long and weigh in at three eighths of an ounce. So they do best on light tackle. They come in three color options. The one real drawback of the Mr. Pompano jig though, is that they come in packs of five for about 30 bucks. All right, so sticking with the sand flea imitators at number nine, I've got the Berkeley Gulp Sand Crab Flea. Of course, the main feature of any Berkeley Gulp, Gulp bait is the scent dispersal, and the sand crab fleas are supposed to give off a scent that specifically mimics a sand flea. These are unrigged soft bodies that require you add a hook or a jig head, so you can rig them in your preferred method. They come in three color options, and they come in packs of 12 for about 10 bucks. Okay, at number eight, I really like Tsunami's Fluke Ball Jig, which is a different kind of lure from all of the other lures in this list. The Fluke Ball Jig is what is known as a Naked Ball Jig, and the design is borrowed from fluke fishing in the north. The Naked Ball Jig is a relatively new kind of approach to Pompano market, uh, to the Pompano market, but it's a really effective lure. The design consists of a round jig head and a single hook, but instead of being molded together, they connect via a small chain. So think of it like this. There's a round jig head, which instead of a hook has a small barrel swivel that connects to a small chain, which then connects to the hook, usually a bucktail hook. Now, the thing is, some of these ball jigs can be as big as eight ounces, which is way too big for Pompano. So look for the smaller ones in the one ounce and smaller size. Okay, at, and, and to focus there, like I said, I like the Tsunami's fluke ball jig for this. All right, and number seven, I want to give props to Dogfish Tackle and Marine's Crazy Jig, which is a type of banana jig. Now, Dogfish is one of those local tackle shops I was just talking about before, and they're located in Seminole, Florida. And their Crazy Jig is just a great pompano jig. It's a simple design with an arched-coated lead body surrounding a strong hook. They come in six color options and come in sizes ranging from quarter ounce to three-eighths of an ounce, so they're perfect for light tackle fishing. Just a great, no-frills, effective pompano jig. And here's a quick pro tip for the dogfish tackle and marine crazy jig. Tip the hook with a piece of shrimp or a piece of fish bites. And no, you do not have to go over to Seminole to get them, though if you're in the area, you should check out the store. It's a great tackle shop. You can easily order them online from Dogfish Tackle's webpage. All right, at number six, I'm going to jump from the small local tackle shop to the monster on the block, and that's the Bass Pro House Brand Offshore Angler's Pompano Jig. And here I'm talking about both the Pompano Jig and the newer Pompano Jig Deluxe. Now, really, these are just smaller bucktails, but these are just kind of like small bucktails. But anyone who fishes bucktails for Pompano knows you need to trim the tail short so it stops just behind the bend of the hook, hiding the hook, but not much past the hook. The offshore angler pompano jigs come with that shorter tail already making the bucktail in that compact size. The original model of the offshore angler pompano jigs come in five standard color options and in three sizes, quarter ounce, half ounce, and five eighths of an ounce. The deluxe version come in the same sizes, but come in much more dynamic color options, and they include strands of flashaboo or marabou in the bucktail, giving more reflective flash to the tail. The regular version comes in packs of three or four, uh, 
three for, excuse me, the regular version comes in packs of three for four and a half bucks. And the deluxe come in packs of two for just under five bucks. Okay, bringing us to the Midway point. And yes, the USS Pompano was involved at the Battle of Midway, serving to cut off any Japanese vessels fleeing to, 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 to retreat from Midway. But I digress again. And we are at the Midway point of the top 10 at number five. I'm going to go with the Buccaneer Wiggler Jig. The Wiggler Jig is just is another banana or crazy jig style. The jigs are clear coated in six color options and come in one eight ounce, quarter ounce, half ounce, and three eighths ounce sizes. Love the wobble and the action of these lures. Look around when you're buying them, though, as I've seen them for a dollar thirty for a pack of three in one place, and then a two pack for a dollar fifty in another, and even as much as five bucks for the two pack in other places as well. Rolling in at number four, let's go with Boone Bates Pompano Jig. This is another bucktail style jig that features a bullet head and a very very tightly cropped bucktail. They come in about four color options and can be found in two packs for about seven bucks or in three packs for the same price. These are just solid fundamental bucktail jigs for targeting Pompano and well worth having in your Pompano arsenal. Your Pompano arsehole. Um, <laughs> sorry, your Pompano arsenal. <laughs> At number three, I'm going to point to Wahoo Fishing Products Egg Pompano Jig. Now, like the Boone's Bait Pompano Jig, the Wahoo Egg Pompano Jig is a basic short crop bucktail jig. However, unlike the bullet head of the Boone's Bait model, the Wahoo Fishing Products Eggs Pompano Jig is rigged with an egghead jig. They come in packs of three for about $6, and you can get them just about anywhere that sells tackle. All right, at number two, rather than calling out a specific pompano lure, I want to give props to Hunting and Fishing Depot's entire line of Pompano jigs. And I recommend that you go online and buy one of their Pompano jig boxes, which comes loaded with 24 of Hunting and Fishing Depot's traditional Pompano goofy jigs, Pompano jigs with teasers, jigger fleas, and Pompano crushers. I love all of these Pompano lures, but especially want to point to their Pompano jigs with the teasers and certainly their uniquely designed swinging pompano jigger fleas which incorporate a swinging jig rigged with floating teasers event individually each of these are fantastic pompano lures but having them all together in a dedicated hunting and fishing depot pompano jig box which lists at 27.99 that's well worth the investment if you're targeting pompano just like the uss pompano targeted and destroyed five ships in 1942 all right that brings us to the Fishing Professor's number one favorite Pompano lure, which I will tell you about as soon as we do a quick recap of the others in today's list. At number 10, the Mr. Pompano Jig. At number 9, Berkeley Gulp Sandflea. At number 8, Tsunami Flukeball Jig. At 7, Dogfish Tackle and Marine's Crazy Jig. Uh, again, it's a type of banana jig. It's number 6, the Offshore Angler Pompano Jig and Pompano Jig Deluxe. At 5, Buccaneers Wiggler Jig at four, Boone Bates Pompano Jig at three, Wahoo Fishing Products Egg Pompano Jig at number two, Hunting and Fishing Depot's entire line of Pompano Jigs and the Hunting Fishing Depot's Pompano Jig Box. All right, that brings us back to port with my number one favorite Pompano Jig, and that's Skyline Fishing Company's Pompano Jigs, especially their Wacky Jumper and Goofy Dancers with Teasers. I also like their Peanut Pompano Bucktail, but my number one is the Skyline Wacky Jumper Heavy Duty Pompano Jig with Teaser. Slewer has got great wobbly action and bounces along the bottom in a really enticing action. They're available in three-eighths, half-ounce, 
three eighths ounce, half ounce, three quarter ounce, and one ounce. They come rigged with 2X strong black nickel hooks, a hand-tied teaser, and are powder painted and cured and come in 42 color options, not to mention the 14 color options for your teasers. All around, a great Pompano jig. So that wraps up this week's top 10 countdown. I want to offer up a special thanks to the men of the USS Pompano for their sacrifice in the Pacific Theater during World War II. So that's the professor, Fishing Professor's Top 10 and History Lesson for this week. As usual, if you want to let me know your thoughts about this week's Top 10, if you have a Pompano lure you think I should be taking a look at, or if you're a manufacturer and you want to alert me to your Pompano lure, send me an email at sid at inventivefishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a Fishing Professor's Top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future Top 10s. And that's it for this week's top 10. So let's get back to some casting pod style. Well, my listening crew, as captain of this rodcast, I think it's time to accept that we've reached the end of our voyage. And while I have to go down with the ship, it's time for you to take port and join us again next week. Hey, I want to thank Steve Wolf of Pure Fishing in Berkeley for taking the time to talk with us about Berkeley lures today. I really like that conversation. Hey, and I also do hope you found some solace in today's bourbon break as I poured out my thoughts about Clyde May's original Alabama whiskey. And I hope that my countdown of my top 10 Pompano lures was of some use to you. Before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The ramp is slippery. I say again, the ramp is slippery. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Hey, be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday, just like every other Wednesday. And I hope you'll remember, as all of my listening crew, if you'll please spread the word about the Rodcast. The more people we have on this trip, the better. And of course, if you have comments or questions about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future top tens, bourbon breaks, interviews, or information about specific fishing related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the broadcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventifishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventifishing. And be sure to check out all the great video content over on the Inventifishing YouTube channel. I will be back next week with another awesome episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on. The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!